invite you, as has become our custom, to stand for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word from Ephesians chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there. It's page 976 of the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we are creeping closer and closer to college football season, I'm remiss to wonder, who will be the biggest impact players this season? Who will be that outstanding quarterback of the SEC? Because, you know, no other conference really matters. (laughs) Lynn, will Milton actually fill the shoes of Heaton Hooker? Who will be the premier running back and quarterback duo Please, Jesus, K.J. Jefferson, and Rocket Sanders. (laughs) Who will be the dominant defense? Which team's coaching staff will give it a chance to actually beat Alabama? Or the other team from Baton Rouge that we do not speak of? Who will stand out? These, These standout players will become the franchise players. They will be their team's billboard. They will be the face of the team. Everyone who looks at this team will see this player, much like John Morant is for the Memphis Grizzlies. What SEC players will become the face of their franchise this year? As we wait for another month, we do not have to wait as we come to the book of Ephesians. We do not need to wait For it is quickly and clearly seen who the face of the franchise is. Just as football teams have players and coaches, staffs and supporters who are involved with producing this one person who is their guy. In these first three verses, it is very apparent in the book of Ephesians who this book is about. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church believes in the Holy Trinity, as we will focus on next week. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who by our catechism says are same in substance, equal in power and glory. But our scriptures make very clear who is the face of the franchise. And his name is Jesus. It is Jesus who God sent to fulfill his plan. It is Jesus who the Holy Spirit exalts and directs all his people to. It is Jesus who, when we were in our darkness, came and brought his marvelous light It is Jesus who, when we deserved eternal death and punishment for our own guilt and shame, came and cleansed us from our sins by his precious blood. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who became incarnate, 
who did what was necessary to bring us back to himself by dying upon the cross in our place as our substitute, defeating the powers of darkness and in death through whom we are justified. We are united to him. He reconciles us back to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we believe in the Holy Trinity. But it's Jesus' face that it's on the billboards. This is who our God is. This is who it's about. This word is for us and what God has done for us in Jesus. God provided our deepest need. His name is Jesus. He condescended, putting on flesh. He didn't wait for us to redeem ourselves. He didn't wait for us or expect us to finally get our acts together. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can say that the book of Ephesians is about many things, and I'll actually go on later to say that it is about a few other things. But if we forget Jesus, we forget who this book is actually about. We miss what he accomplished. It's not about you. And it's not about me. Our names cannot be found in this book. And this book actually isn't even about Paul. We will learn a lot about Paul. What he believed and what he taught. We'll learn about his theology. But what we need to see for the next few months. What we need to be reminded of is the great accomplishment of our God in and through the person and work of Jesus. If at the end of this study, after this series, if all we remember is what this book meant to us and how it changed our lives, how it helped us through a hard time, then we've actually missed the point of the book. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. What this book does for our lives, where it meets us and allows us to overcome, is absolutely important. But these are the consequences. These are the implications of who Jesus is. If we read this book and forget what it actually says, then all we've done is read this book and made it all about us. then all we've done is made this book a self-help book. And all we've become is moralistic, therapeutic deists. We go to God when we feel down so that he can pick us up. And if we do that, we've lost the power of the gospel of Jesus. But if after this study we remember the words of Jesus through Paul, what he actually says that is true, if we remember what Christ has actually done and then how it changes our lives, as it did to the people of Ephesus, then we will see God's life-giving, transforming word of God that changes everything. Once we state this as our goal, 
then we can come to the book of Ephesians and see the great depths. Oh, the great depths of the love of God in Jesus. And I'll draw our attention, and I want us to look at two main things this morning. is the author of this book and the audience of this book. The author, very clearly, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, we just read about Paul's testimony, his conversion story. And nobody has a conversion story like Paul. You've heard me say it before, growing up in the evangelical church, it's, it's very often that people really wish, man, I wish I had a better conversion story. I wish that I was in prison or I was a drug addict or I was totally destroying God's church and then he changed me. But that wasn't my story. My story was actually very simple. But we read Paul's story and we should marvel at its magnificence. Not because of who Paul was but because of who Jesus was. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Quite the opposite. He was actually looking to destroy Jesus. He wanted to destroy what Jesus stood for. He wanted to discredit him, discredit his other apostles and disciples, killing anyone who came to oppose him. This is what he did when Stephen was stoned to death. But by God's grace... And by the will of God the Father, Jesus physically appeared to Paul and turned his life around. He turned his life upside down. What a testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ. He can truly convert anybody. He can truly change and redeem anybody for the good of his kingdom. Paul was transformed by God's unmerited grace, and God used him to spread the gospel, to build his church, not because of anything that Paul had done. Listen to how Paul speaks of his background. Turn back with me, just, I think it's two pages in the Pew Bible, to Genesis, or sorry, not Genesis, that's a few more pages, to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now skip down to verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what happened in Acts 9. For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This, this is Paul's background. This is his past life. But God uses Paul, his strengths, his weaknesses, 
his personality, his history, for the good and the sake of his church. This term apostle can be used in three different ways in the New Testament. It can mean simply just a messenger, an emissary. One sent out to give a message from someone else. And this is how Paul is kind of using this term of apostle. There's another way apostle can be used in the New Testament. It can describe someone commissioned by the church. This is what we see at the apostle James in Galatians 1.19. But also we see in how Paul is referring to himself here as an apostle is someone who is hand-selected by the resurrected Lord. It was his closest companions, often called the Twelve, that proclaimed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what we see here. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, commissioned by him. But more than that, he's an apostle of Jesus by the will of God himself. He isn't just some leader writing a letter to a local church. The letter to the the Ephesians is handwritten by him to edify them, to build up this church of Gentiles. It was by the will of God that Paul was set apart that he might preach among the Gentiles. That's how Galatians 1.16 ends. That God would use Paul in all of his gifts, in all of his wisdom, in all of his training, in all of his life to masterfully write these letters for the edification of the church. And this is what he says in Colossians 1.18, that they might grow to be mature in Christ. Therefore, Paul plays a very unique story in redemptive history. He writes with authority. An authoritative role that only a few men in the entire history of the church have. And he's going to use his gifts. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was a Pharisee. So he's going to reference and allude to the Old Testament often. And sometimes we might not even hear it because we don't know our Old Testament like Paul did. He's also going to talk about Theology. Theology is discussing the truth about God. So we shouldn't be afraid of it. We actually should be encouraged to think theologically about our lives. Because what theology is doing is it's stating truths about God, who he is, who he claims to be in scriptures, and states these are the implications. If this is true, then this is what you must do. We've been interviewing candidates for our assistant minister position. And this is one of the hardest things for us as a session to determine. Because this is what can happen of ministers of the gospel. We can know all the right answers. We can know our theology. We can quote scripture. We can tell you what the catechism and what the confessions actually say. But what we have to determine as a session is, does this person actually believe it? And do you know how we tell if they actually believe it? Do they live according to their theology? Our theology should shape who we are. Because our theology is what we believe. 
And if we truly believe it, it changes our lives. What we believe should affect how we act. R.C. Sproul has famously said, we are all theologians. It's just whether we're good ones or bad ones. Because when we think about God, we think about the God who created all things by the word of his power. We think about this God who has redeemed us by the blood of his son. We think about this God who has set us apart as his people. This should change the way that we live. And Paul will teach us about this theology. He's going to talk about salvation. He's going to talk about reconciliation. He's going to talk about spiritual warfare. He's even going to talk about predestination. He actually uses that word in verse 5 of chapter 1. He's going to talk about the church, which is what we call ecclesiology. He's going to be talking about this new age that has been dawned, which the entire Old Testament saints longed to see. How it's been inaugurated, how it's been realized through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about our union with Christ. How through faith we become so united to Jesus that in a very real way we participate in him now. We are so identified with him that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And that when the world sees us, they should see Jesus. That we are so incorporated in him that our hearts should beat to the gospel because we've been so changed by the power of his word. We will also see how Paul viewed the supremacy of Christ. We saw in this passage three times he says, Christ Jesus Christ Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just a name. This is a title. Jesus is the Messiah in whom all of God's promises are wrapped up in and depend upon. Paul is asserting a theological truth about Jesus. He is God's anointed Messiah. He is the one that God promised to save the world through. This is our Redeemer, resurrected from the dead, reigning on high over all things. God has put all things under his feet. This is Ephesians 1.22, not Psalm 110. God has put all things under his feet and given him head over all things. Everything, heaven and on earth, have been subjected to him. At the center of Paul's theology, at the center of his universe, is Jesus. Everything evolves around him. He is the center of space. He is the center of time. Because in him, the fullness of time was revealed. Think about the implications that that has for God's church. Here we have someone, Paul, who has been so totally transformed by the grace of of God, and he's trying to tell the church the same is true for you. 
He's teaching them how to see themselves for who they truly are because of what Christ has done. This is the message of the gospel, the truth of God that radically changes everything about us. He's going to go on and explain these gospel changes and how it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we work. It changes the way we worship. It changes the way we see people who are different from ourselves, culturally, ethically, socially, racially. It changes all of our relationships to one another, to our spouse, to our children, to our employees and employers. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus how they are to live because of what Christ has done because of the truth of the gospel. This is who you are. And just think about what the Ephesians had to do. The church in Ephesus contained one of the seven marvels of the ancient world, a temple dedicated to Artemis. Paul was teaching the church in Ephesus the truth about Christ that this temple is not the center of your lives anymore. The resurrected and reigning Christ is at the center of the cosmos. They were to be a church that lived in this city radically different. They were to be a church that lived in a city that that was a major political city in the empire of Rome. But they were to believe that the Roman Empire did not have the final authority over their lives. But it was their king, Jesus. Paul is trying to change the way that this church sees the world. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound something like what our church needs? Isn't this the type of theology that we need to believe in order to function properly as the church of Jesus Christ? That we can properly and rightfully know Jesus is the source and the center of all things. Not just Sunday morning worship. The God that we worship is the center of all things. But notice, Paul doesn't teach them to forsake the world. He doesn't teach them to leave the world, to cut off the world. He teaches them a theology that will shape them to empower them to go into the world of darkness and proclaim the gospel. This is how the book ends. By putting on the full armor of God and going to battle for Christ. And we're given a promise that we will endure. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done. And what's so fascinating about this letter is that Paul doesn't actually address in this church a problem. Right? He writes to the Corinthians. He writes to the Galatians. He writes to the Colossians with a very specific problem that he's addressing. But here in Ephesians, we we don't have that. 
What some scholars say is that we actually have just a great summation of all of Paul's theology, these practical daily truths for the people to live by. And what's so fascinating is that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we hear of the truths of the gospel. This is what Sinclair Ferguson calls the grammar of the gospel. Everything that Paul says is either a statement of truth or he's speaking about the implications of that truth. Look at me just at verse 3 in chapter 1. I'm still in Galatians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a fact of truth. Go with me to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is the truth of the gospel. Go to verse, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what God has done for us. Go to verse 12. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. He isn't telling us something that we should do. He is telling us something that he has already accomplished in Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 4. Paul begins with a therefore. He's telling us, he has told us what has happened. And in chapter 4, he begins the therefore, telling us if this is the truth of the gospel, this is how we are to live as God's people. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Chapter 4, verse 25, therefore, having put off all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, if we get this gospel grammar wrong, then it changes everything about our lives. Because God is the one who has done this. Therefore, he calls us to be this or to do this. If we get gospel grammar wrong, we tend to ask ourselves this question. How can I make myself right with God? How can I undo what I've done? How can I undo the things that I should have done but didn't? How can I earn God's grace? That's the wrong grammar of the gospel. Here is the true grammar of the gospel. Believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you are saved from your sins. Believe upon Jesus, and you are given everything. Everything. All things are given unto you 
through Jesus. Have good theology because it will change the way that you live. It will change the way that you see yourself and it will change the way that you see God in his marvelous and glorious grace. This isn't Paul's message. This is the message of Christ through Paul. It's not based on Paul's merit, anything that Paul has done. This message is from Christ through Paul according to the will of God our Father. This will will be important for us next week. Paul was fulfilling his calling as an apostle to proclaim by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. Will we allow this truth to truly change our lives? Will we allow this truth to transform us from the inside out? If you find yourself in opposition to this word, will you change? This is God's holy and errant word. When we read it, when we study it, when we pray it, it should be planted deep inside of us. Think about this posture that we could have if we truly believe these words. Think about how it could change our church if we truly believed all these words of the grace of God. Think about how this could change your family. Think about how this could change this community in which we live. If we all lived according to what we truly believe, we have received all things in Christ Jesus. It isn't about us. It's about proclaiming Christ. What he has secured for us and what he is calling us to do. This is who the apostle is writing about. The resurrected and reigning Christ. The second point is the audience. This is who the apostle is writing to. Look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, the second part of the verse. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now we've already seen a little bit about who the Ephesians were. But notice what Paul does here. He actually calls this church saints. Already we're smacked in the face with it. This is an Old Testament word being brought and applied to the New Testament church. Saints were people consecrated by God himself to become full members of his covenant community. This is what he said of them in Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Paul is taking this New Testament term and applying it to the people of God 
telling them, you are members of the household of God. He is calling them saints. He is calling them the faithful. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus. They were to be holy because God had set them apart. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are the face of the earth. It wasn't anything that they deserved. They were holy because God chose them, separated them, consecrated them, and made them his people. Do you believe that about yourself? That God has called you, separated you, sanctified you to be his treasured possession. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of his great love that he has for you. These are the blessings that we have in Christ right now. This is the gospel. This is the love of Christ that has been revealed to us. We are God's chosen people simply by his grace. This is what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is as though Paul is doing a priestly prayer over these people, proclaiming to them, this is what is yours in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace. We have received his unmerited grace We are sinners that deserve nothing but God's judgment. Yet in Christ Jesus, we receive nothing but grace. We receive nothing but peace with God. Jesus is the conduit. It is through him that all blessings flow. I say this with some hesitancy. You'll find out for very quickly why. Before I entered vocational ministry full-time, I actually worked at Best Buy. I spent some time at Geek Squad, and for five years, I went into people's homes and installed home theater systems. That's why I was hesitant to say that, because now all of you are thinking about, oh, he could mount my TV. <laughs> and you know, over five years, the most upset that I ever saw anybody was when I mounted their TV and there were wires showing on their wall. But here was the problem, is most of the time it was their fault. Most of the time they didn't have a power outlet back behind their TV. And if you mount a TV, you can't run a power cable through the wall. It's against regulation. It's against code. And if your house catches on fire, don't come to me. The second problem that they had is that they went a little cheap on cables. Their cables weren't actually long enough to be plugged in the TV, to go down and to plug into the devices at the bottom of the wall. But people were so mad. I want a TV up on the wall, and I don't want to see any cables. Towards the end of my career as a Geek Squad agent, I was actually a double agent, not to say anything, but um, man, I'm a nerd. (laughs) Um, But towards the end of my career at Best Buy, they actually created this 
um, power bridge conduit. And what it did is it actually allowed me to cut a hole about this big in your sheetrock, put the other end at the bottom, and it had these connecting pieces. And what it allowed me to do is to plug your TV into that power, and at the bottom, it was a separate plug that would then plug into your power source, and it also had a conduit where I could run all the different cables. That if your cables were long enough, you could have your TV up on the wall, and then you could have all your things underneath, and you couldn't see any of the cables. And that's what people wanted. This is what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. He is the conduit through which we receive all of God's blessings. It is through him we receive God's grace. It is though he is a river rushing all of God's grace and mercy and peace, and it's running where only we can see it because he has changed our hearts through the power of the gospel. And it is through this grace in which we now live. God's grace should define everything about you. Not only do we live according to this grace, grace, but we give this great grace. For Paul himself says, My grace is sufficient for you, for, by, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I boast in all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest in me. This is the realm in which we've been transferred through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this grace assumes our peace and reconciliation. This peace, this vision of the Old Testament, that they might experience the shalom of God. That through his Messiah, he will give them rule over all of their enemies. That they would be able to live in harmony with God himself, in harmony with one another, in harmony in their household. That their entire lives will be defined by the shalom of God. This text calls us to view ourselves in a world that's dark, that's hard, that's full of sin and death but to view ourselves as living in the realm of God's everlasting grace and perfect shalom that he has given to us in Christ. Because this is what good fathers do. They give their children everything that they need. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Jesus, through his apostle, pronounces over his readers this promise and blessing that is theirs, sealed upon them by the love and grace of God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. And listen to this. This is, uh, this is how I'm finishing. This is where we're going next week. If you have your Bible, look at verse, I'm getting ready to go through verse 3 through 13. This is how God has shown us his grace and peace. Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, he has chosen us in Christ. He has made us holy and blameless 
in Christ. Verse 5, he has predestined us for adoptions as sons through Christ. Verse 6, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse 7, he has redeemed us by the blood of Christ according to the riches of his grace. Verse 9, he has planned in the fullness of time to unite us and all things in Christ. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, in Christ we have hope. Verse 13, in Christ we have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believe in him, and we're sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is all about Jesus. He is the face. He is the franchise player of the gospel of grace and he has redeemed you out of your sins because of the great love which was he had for you. Amen. Let's pray.